looking back at some of the other honors, there's the We Met Caddy Scholarship Fund. You must be very proud of that. I'm very proud of that. Uh, that Caddy Fund was organized in 1949, and uh, it has been a source of great satisfaction to me. There's no story that could ever be told that is richer or sweeter than the story of Francis and Eddie. And may your lives be full of birdies and eagles. Hello and welcome to Legacy, the We Met Fun podcast. If you'd like to go back and check out any of our prior conversations on the Legacy podcast, you will find those in our feed as well as on our website at www.wemet.org. On today's episode, we are excited to be joined by former executive director of the We Met Fund, Bob Donovan. Bob is the recipient of the 2023 Denny Goodrich Honorary Alumnus Award, which is presented annually to someone who did not receive the scholarship when they were in school, but had been exemplary in their support of the We Met Fund. For 29 years, Bob led the fund through a period of tremendous expansion and growth, and there is perhaps no better person to represent multiple generations of this organization's impact than Bob. Growing up in Milton, Massachusetts, Bob learned to play golf at the old Wollaston Golf Club, and like his grandfather and father before him, began working as a caddy as a teenager. He ventured out of New England to attend college at his beloved University of Tennessee, and following graduation, began a career in sports information, which included positions in the Harvard Athletics Office, where he also acted as golf coach in the 1970s. Bob and his family then moved to Connecticut, where he worked in public relations for the former Hartford Whalers, and subsequently ran special events with Cigna as part of their affiliation with the Greater Hartford Open. Bob returned to his roots following many years at Cigna, when he took the position as executive director of the Francis We Met Scholarship Fund. In his 29 years at the helm, Bob was instrumental in countless important efforts, which we discuss in detail. Among Bob's many achievements, he was intrinsically involved in the broad expansion of the Endowed Scholarship Program, the inception and growth of the annual golf marathon, and, leveraging his expertise in special events, the creation of the We Met Annual Banquet alongside We Met Fund benefactor Dick Connolly, which today continues to be the largest golf dinner in America. Bob remains closely connected to the fund as a trustee on the board of directors, and often provides crucial information and background as one of the preeminent golf history buffs in Massachusetts. We are extremely grateful and fortunate for his impact on this organization, and we thank him for his time today. We hope you enjoy our conversation, and thank you for listening. We wanted to start our conversation where we do with all of our guests, which is centered around your personal relationship with the game of golf. So when do you first remember picking up a golf club or being on a golf course? Picked up a golf club. My dad got me an old six iron, swung it in the backyard, hit somebody in the head on a backswing. And... Played a couple of times up at Vesper with him, but I didn't really start to play till I was 15 at Wollaston. I wasn't interested in it when I was real young. And my good friend Bob Lewis brought me out one Sunday with Kevin Ahern, who went on to become a great hockey player, played for the Whalers and a star in the real estate world, and his brother, Michael who was one of the early stars involved in Apple. So that was a good group. And I liked it, and I started to play. And then caddy for my dad a lot. He and his father had been caddy, so he taught me the right way. And what was really interesting was it was a great golf atmosphere because he was like a six, very competitive, and played with a fellow named Warren Tibbetts from New Hampshire, they were one of the best teams in the Fallon Cup, which is the big never guess at Wallace, and they drew great teams from all over. And Warren won a Mass Am, two New England Ams, a Mass Senior, several New Hampshire amateurs, good-looking, cool guy. And it was like, wow. And I got to caddy for him. That was pretty exciting. And Kevin Walsh gave me a couple of boosters along the way. But in my house, we had a whole, whole bunch of newspapers every day. The Globe, the Herald, the Record, the Quincy Patriot Ledger, the Weekly Milton Times. And I just followed everything in the sports pages, and particularly the Ledger, which doesn't have much of a sports section anymore, but just got hooked on it. And all of these things happened in a short period of time in 1963. And Milton High had this fabulous football team that won the Bay State League championship. And then, I don't know if I've told you the story, but my dad took me to the U.S. Open at Brookline. We went over on Saturday, and that was in the time that they were still playing 36 holes on Saturday and no play on Sunday. And we walked around the golf course, and that was pretty neat. And then they end up in a tie, and we have tickets to go back the next day for the playoff. 
And my dad was friendly with a fellow named Johnny Gallagher, who was a legendary hockey player at BC, younger brother of one of my dad's best friends, and Ernie Roberts, who became the sports editor of the Globe. And I think Ernie was the communications chair for that open. Anyway, we're standing in the quadrangle, and long story short, I met Francis, we met, and he was so nice. <laughs> and he asked me, where do you go to school? Are you playing golf? You're doing this and that. And I was blown away that somebody would pay attention to a little kid and then 15-year-old kid. And I walked away and I said to my dad, gee, what a nice man. <laughs> my dad said, yes, he is. <laughs> so, so, you know, funny, like 40 years later, I get so involved in Francis with that. That intro covered a lot. I mean, you just covered a dozen names of people that were influential in terms of your love of golf, memorable competitors, caddies. Then obviously, we'd jump ahead, but you've been dedicated to playing, promoting, and supporting the game of golf through working at We Met. In regards to golf in Massachusetts, where the love of the game is felt so passionately, what do you think is about all those people and the golf community that makes it unique? Well, <laughs> we have great courses, great participation. There may be something to be said for starting the season all over in the spring every year. It's kind of a fresh start and you get going into it that way. There's Francis and all of that. And we genuinely had real career amateurs, which was terrific. Ted Bishop, Warren Tibbetts, Bill Foley, so many of them like that. Fun time. And I was very lucky to get exposed to all of it and obviously got addicted by the exposure. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. I've always said there's an embarrassment of riches. Being from Connecticut, where there's a lot of great golf courses, it's amazing the quality of golf and the volume of golf in Massachusetts. I'm always blown away by it. So you're absolutely right about that. And when you look at it also, you look at all the companies in the golf business from a little state up in the Northeast. It's a really golf haven. Yeah, no kidding. But going back now, Bob, you graduated from Milton High and decided to head to Knoxville, the University of Tennessee. So there's quite a change there, not just geographically, but culturally. What drew you there? I think the term would be today, I was looking for a different experience. I wanted to get beyond the traditional New England and Midwest type of schools. And frankly, my first choice was UCLA and might still be. And maybe I might have gotten in some corner of the film world if I'd gone to UCLA. But my dad finally said, that's too far away. <laughs> so now I started looking at some different schools down south, Florida schools, and he listened to that for a couple of weeks and finally said, eh, all you'll do is party and play golf in Florida. <laughs> so he may have known me well. So then I started looking at some of your other Florida southern schools, Tulane, UNC, and my dad ended up in a group doing some business things. They were involved in doing a strip mall type of thing in Melbourne, Florida. And this was a group of people from Michigan, Florida, elsewhere in the East. The quarterback of it was a fellow, interesting guy named Henry Squire Ogle, an attorney and a deal maker from Knoxville. So several of the meetings were in Knoxville. And my dad and Henry Squire Ogle hit it off and get talking about, as people do, about your families and your children. And Henry Ogle said, Jeepers, sounds like Bobby might really like what's going on in Tennessee. It's incredible what this place is doing right now. And went down and took a look at it, fell in love and still love it. Yes, you do. And you always have your orange on whenever the Saturdays come around. Every or, Saturday. You know, yep. So, Bob, when your time at Rocky Top was done, did you know what you wanted to do right away? What was your first job out of college? Let me just back up a second. One of the terrific things at UT was it had a fabulous communication school. And the UT Daily Beacon, it's a daily. So it's five days a week, and it's always ranked amongst the best in the country. So Woody Page, a bunch of really well-known writers came out of that. And it was fun to do it and have a chance to do that. The summer after my sophomore year, I was home. And again, Kevin Walsh comes into my life. I was with Rich Murad and picking up something for my mom at the drugstore. And I ran into Kevin and he said, what are you doing this summer and this and that? And then he said, geez, I might have something perfect for you. And he hooked me up to do, and you can only say do, what they call tea to green that used to be in the globe. And that was a Sunday morning, Monday morning summary of all the golf, the weekend golf, all the golf courses, like in Eastern Massachusetts. 
So I would go in at about 3.30, quarter of four, and have this huge list and would call 50 to 75 golf courses every Saturday night, Sunday. And what did you have for a weekend event? And who played, who won, and all this sort of stuff. And of course, it was kind of a pain to the pros, but it gave their members a little exposure. I mean, we had times that it would fill up maybe a quarter of a page of the Sunday Globe or the Monday Globe. And it was the old philosophy of name sell the news, and it was before the internet. And somebody might win the A, B, C, D at Fresh Pond or something like that. And his wife, his kids, his mother, they would all buy a copy of the paper and clip it. (laughs) So it became profitable for the paper, good for the clubs, good for those folks, and good for me. And anyway, point of this is, after that, I would work on the desk. There was a desk of what they called Nighthawks, and that was like six or eight of them. Most of them were kids in a co-op program at Northeastern, and the real editors of the newspaper were at a desk next to us. So we handled stories that got called in and phone calls, what they used to call Ask the Globe Sports. And most of those came from bars. <laughs> Somebody might call and ask a question. And we're all sports freaks and knew a lot of stuff right off the top of our head. And you give him an answer and he's like, wait a second, you got to tell my buddy. And you know it was to settle a bet. But anyway, here I am and I start to be exposed to the incredible sports staff and all this talent. And, you know, Kevin Walsh was there and you had Bud Collins and Jerry Mason. Young Peter Gammons was there, Bob Ryan, Lee Monfell. I mean, these people were absolute stars. I spent one summer of that, and I said, oh, boy, this is what I want to get involved in. So I went back, kind of got more involved in the UT Daily Beacon, and I had switched majors from journalism to advertising, ended up with enough to kind of get a double major, and I jumped back to journalism full-time, and fortunately, I was able to catch on at the Globe when I got out of school as basically a gopher office boy. Wow, Bob. That's amazing. And I'd imagine for somebody with such an inherent interest in sports and sports information and just being aware of everything that's going on, certainly in your home state of Massachusetts, working in sports information at Harvard had to be pretty incredible. Can you take us back to that role? What does that role entail? Well, Whalers came first. Oh, Whalers was first. Sorry, I had that back. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, Whalers was before Harvard. And one of the things that I did as the daytime office boy was sort the mail. And the big writers got press releases sent to them. Everything was mailed down. I mean, facts barely existed. No internet, obviously. So press guides were sent to them, press releases. And I would just pour through these things. They seemed interesting. What I didn't realize at the time was I was teaching myself a course on how to do press guides and press releases and that kind of thing. And so it's in the era of when the Bruins are the biggest thing in Boston. And, you know, they won the Stanley Cup in... 1970, lost out in the first round, upset by the Canadians in 71. And right about that time, a group of fellows from California, Gary Davidson, who did solid lookalike for Robert Redford and this guy named Bill Murphy, they put together the ABA, the WHA, the World Football League, and eventually the World Team Tennis. So they had some success with the ABA, and they always wanted to have a different angle. And what you're really trying to do is people who might not be able to afford or couldn't, for one reason or another, get an NFL team or a National Hockey League team, they could get one of these things. And in the back of their mind, they could buy in relatively cheap, but in the back of their mind, it was always, let's force a merger. And boy, will this franchise be worth something later on. It took me a while to understand that that was part of the game. (laughs) There's a business side to sports that was just different than us growing up as kids, right? And these guys... They were creating value, ownership, and this sort of thing. So the Whalers got put together, Howard Baldwin, Bill Barnes, a few other people, real entrepreneurs, and the Whalers are desperate, looking for somebody to help them out a little bit with press releases and all of this, and guys at the Globe here, and I hear Kevin Walsh talking about it, and I say, gee, I might be interested in that. And anyway, they get me an interview with the agreement, if this falls through, the Globe will take me back. (laughs) So... So I went over to the Whalers to help them out with press releases. And after two or three days, them saying I could do a decent job on a press release, they said, 
The other problem we have is the papers don't cover us on the road. So all we're getting is wire service stories back, and there's never a slant towards us. How would you like to go on the road, travel with the team, and send stories back after the game to the Globe and the Herald? Would I? Would I? <laughs> <laughs> so I had gone from chasing the sandwiches up in the cafeteria for the sports staff at the Globe to doing this in like a three-week stretch. So traveled with the team all along, dragging this big old fax. The big old ones back in those days were about 30 pounds, and it had no limit what you could take through an airport. And the, the guys on the team were terrific, and we end up very competitive all year long. And then we won the first World Hockey Association championship. So like this is like, wow, for me. But at the end of that first year, the Whalers discovered was the Bruins were number one, obviously sold out the garden all the time. The Bruins had brought in the Braves, which were their number one farm team, and they had 11000 per game for the Braves. This is the year before. Now there's three hockey teams in Boston. The Whalers have a split schedule between the Boston Arena and the Boston Garden, and we're averaging 9000 and the Braves are averaging 2000 So we figured out the secondary market is 11000 <laughs> and that's not going to cut it. So kind of at the end of the first year, Howard starts quietly thinking about what else can we do? Are we going to make it here? And they're giving a lot of tickets away and that sort of thing. And I mean, there's hardcore Boston fans who resent the fact that the World Hockey Association has grabbed some of the best players in the NHL. So anyway, the Whalers make the decision to move and I didn't want to move. They were going to go to Springfield and then go down to Hartford. And Hartford was building a new arena and needed a prime tenant. So it was kind of perfect that way. And the Whalers looked at it like, oh, boy, we can have our own market and be our own thing. Well, Bob, I can tell you that even to this day, certainly when I grew up in West Hartford, there are a lot of people who the Whalers, that's still their favorite professional team in Connecticut. It certainly was when I was growing up. Let me tell you real quick about the Harvard golf team thing. That was really fun. Oh, sure. Yeah. Right, because, Bob, you were a coach at the Harvard Golf Club. I was a Harvard right? Golf coach for two years. And Tim Taylor was the assistant hockey coach under Bill Cleary. And Tim was really a revolutionary guy in hockey, was adapting a bunch of the early Russian stuff on the passing and the working of the puck around. And anyway, he gets recruited to be the coach at Yale. And he knows I'm involved in golf and play golf a little bit. And he drops by the office. This is in early May one day and says, Bob. And he's been coaching the golf team. And what they used to do was an assistant hockey coach or basketball coach would do the golf team in the spring. And they weren't necessarily interested in it, but it was something to do and sneak out and play golf someplace nice. So he said, I'm going to go on a recruiting trip for Yale this weekend. And Billy Cleary says, ah, go ahead. And would you like to take the golf team? They have to play in the Easterns and then the Ivy League championship. And I said, yeah, sure, that'd be fun. And so they got me one of the vans that the athletic department had, and we drove down to the New England, I guess it was, in Agawam Hunt, down your way, Thomas. I know Providence. it was. And we played in that, and then we went to the Ivies at Princeton, and we had a great time. I liked golf, knew who the players were on the pros, and the kids could talk to me about all sorts of golf stuff. The other coaches necessarily didn't really know about or care about that much, and anyway, at the end of the weekend, one of the fellows, the co-captain says, Bob, would you maybe like to coach us? <laughs> and that's how that happened. So I coached them for two years and real proud of the fact that I had on my team two people, a fella and a woman, who both made the Harvard Athletic Hall of Fame. So we had fun. What was your home course at that time, Bob, at Harvard? A little place in Brookline called the Country Club. Not oh, okay. Bad, gotcha. yeah, not yeah, a bad yeah. place to be. <laughs> And, you know, that was a little side benefit. I could go out and play nine holes when the guys were out practicing or in a match or something like that. Doesn't hurt to know that course well, especially what we get to down the line and your role at the We Met Fund. But again, we did want to hear, how did you end up going to Connecticut, I believe at the time with your family, working with Cigna and also being involved with the Greater Hartford Open? Well, again, Kevin Walsh comes into my life. Kevin had gone down and was the public relations director for the Whalers when they moved to Hartford and does a bang-up job in the community with all the newspapers and helping build up the things. But he gets a little, I don't want to say burnt out, but maybe it's time he doesn't want to quite do that any longer. 
and Connecticut General is expanding and their target market is they're primarily business insurance, group pension, group insurance, high level insurance products, uh, life and stuff investment. And they're not necessarily a retail oriented type of company. So they're really business entertainment. So the idea of getting into events where they can entertain their customers and clients is important to them. So Kevin ends up going over there to start and run special events. And he sees me and says to me, I tried to get you to come down once before. I think this would be perfect for you. And you know, I'm dating Teresa and we want to get married and you have a fresh start in life. And so I went down to be Kevin's assistant at Connecticut General and step into this incredible job where basically we're in-house consultants, actually billable consultants, and we're putting together events, golf outings with top tour pros around the country. There are two major divisions I'm working with, property casualty and group insurance, and each one of them might have three or four. You've got Hubert Green, Peter Jacobson, Mark O'Meara, Tommy Bolt, all sorts of people like this. Wonderful guy who just died a couple of years ago named Jerry McGee. His son is Annika's husband, Mike McGee. You might have heard of Mike. And these fellows, we specifically look for guys who are good with people and good after-dinner speakers. And we had tennis pros like the legendary Roy Emerson. The Aussies were just beyond fun. <laughs> they, were just, <laughs> they were just crazy. But it was good business entertainment for us. And then we also did a lot of community stuff. So we had a contributions and civic affairs department was giving money to support stuff. But it was like, they particularly looked for things where they could also market themselves and turn it over to the special events people to make something happen to get them a little more promotion for the money they'd given. So they started a concert series called Sunset Sounds with the town of Brookline. And Connecticut General had this magnificent 600-acre campus grounds, beautiful, and the building they called the Glass Palace. And Big lawns, beautiful pond out back, hillsides, and a magnificent terrace. So it became the most perfect place to have a summer concert series, free, open to the public, and it became sort of Hartford's version of the Esplanade concerts in Boston. And we had people like Johnny Cash, Robert Goulet, Chubby Check, much bigger names than you would imagine. We'd have forty to 50,000 people on a Saturday night. So I was involved in that and running these dinners on the customer entertainment that was part of it, and then the what was going on out on the stage, and that was fun. And then we were also with the Greater Hartford Open, and I'd done some work with the old tournament at Pleasant Valley before that, so knew my way a little bit around the tour. And they didn't have a title sponsor then. They were called the Sammy Davis Jr. Greater Hartford Open. It was back in the day when a lot of tour events were hooked up with celebrities. And we were really the largest sponsor. We bought five to 10 TV spots, helped keep it on TV. They weren't necessarily going to be televised. We controlled like 40 pro-am spots. We had the biggest tent on the 18th hole. And we ran like 1,000, 1,500 people through in four or five days. And so I did that. We packaged a bunch of events around the GHO and and also was involved when they moved from Weathersfield to the new golf course. And we were one of the charter members, the first members of a corporate membership that was tied into all the TPC courses around the country, including ours. And I had a woman on my staff, and all she did was book times for that around the country, the different cities, and we had Cigna offices in each of them, or Skybox we had at the Civic Center. So it was a job that supported a lot of stuff. And the good thing about it was that they had a lot of people above me who knew what I was doing. So they didn't bother me too much. <laughs> they just said, yeah, he knows. We don't get any complaints about it. So it was okay. So it was fun. But Kevin left. We were about to merge with INA from Philadelphia, Connecticut General and INA. That's how you get the CIGNA Cigna. I don't think Kevin wanted to. He'd seen enough of corporate life, and he got somebody chasing him for do a job running promotions at Golf Digest Tennis Magazine down in Stamford. So he left, and I ended up, they had some faith in me, and, and now I ran it. So I spent the next 
eight years at Cigna and then left there to go with Joe Keller and Ron Davis to build a dream golf course that never happened in Mattapoisett. We have 40 acres, eight-tenths of a mile of coastline, Reese Jones doing the golf course, and then the real estate banking collapse of 89, 90 hits. And I, I've already moved, resigned, moved to Mattapoisett, getting ready for a groundbreaking and membership drive and all that sort of stuff. And our partner, a then big bank in Providence, collapses because of a real estate loan that falls through and suddenly this dream golf course dies and start looking for what else I can do. Yeah. Bob, before we transition, I will just say one of my top 10 Bob Donovan quotes is always talking about the travelers or going back. I still call it the GHO. I I still call it the GHO. Always will. The old timers call it the GHO. That's great. That brings us to what was the next stage of your career and what a legacy it was. From 91 to 2019, you were the executive director of the Francis We Met Scholarship Fund through a period of truly amazing growth, expansion, and impact. And we want to cover everything, Bob, but obviously I think we'd need eight-hour podcast to do that. <laughs> but we want to focus on a few major milestones over your three decades as executive director. So first, thinking back on 1991, how did you learn in Mattapoisett? How do you learn about the executive director position at We Met? And do you remember the process of interviewing, the people involved, and how you decided to take it on? Oh, sure. Well, the project had died in Manapoisa. We had moved there, got a nice house. We had actually, Keller Davis Company, rented a, a nice building that was our office, and I was working out of that. I was the only person in the building most of the days. And you know, now I have to look for a job, and Joe can keep me on for a while. But And I'm looking at different things kind of around the country, but I don't necessarily want to move because I have two old parents, and I'm an only in Milton. So I start putting out feelers to a lot of people, and a couple of folks mentioned to me, gee, there's a change that's happening at the Francis We Met Scholarship Fund, and they're going to be looking for somebody. And there had been some turmoil and some people left, and the prior executive director had been a retired ad salesman at Time Magazine and brought in to do some promotion, basically around the 88 Open. And Kind of after the 88 Open, he wanted to move on. So they're looking for somebody younger, and maybe somebody can change the direction. And I was kind of in the right place at the right time, and I end up getting hired after a long period between the first and the second interview. I thought they weren't interested. I'd call a couple of my friends. Oh, well, they still are, but they're working some things out. So Anyway, I get a phone call from Denny Goodrich, who's on the committee, and Ted Kennerson, and a couple of people that I'd had a final interview on like January 28th. I'd had an interview when he calls me the next day, offers me the job, and then says to me, and the next day is going to be Friday, maybe that's January 31st. Anyway, he says, can you meet me for coffee tomorrow morning? I said, sure. He wants to meet me in a coffee shop kind of next door to his office on Devonshire Street. And what was going to be 20 minutes ended up close to two hours. And you know, he just kind of told me everything. What was going on? What was the good stuff? What was the bad stuff? What are the opportunities? Who's who? What do they do? What might they need to change? And he said, it's yours. Take it and run. And he was tremendously supportive. He and Ted Kennerson both. And we had to do some changes in the office and that sort of thing. And they just had a couple of events then. They called it the Par Club. But we did things to get better participation in some of the events and change it and change the communications, the in-report, started a newsletter, different outreach to some of the key donors, and it started to grow. At that time, it sounds like you obviously you spoke about short-term goals, long-term goals. Were there a few things in particular that was impressed upon you by the board of saying, Here are our goals for growth next year, next five years, next 10 years. No, it never quite happened like that. I mean, they wanted to grow the scholarships and they had to broaden the base, get more communications out about the scholarship. There was a little bit of a concern that some clubs were looking at us saying, gee, they're only for caddies, so we can't really support that. So we had to find a way to, without turning our back on caddies, 
showed that we were, for all the kids that worked in golf and that sort of thing, and gradually we were able to lay and broaden the foundation and grow it. And you always wanted to get to the next level. And so the next year we were able to get to 325,000. I mean, these numbers are so tiny today to look back at, but it was a step in the right direction. And then every year we started to increase and add pieces. And we just had a little small staff. And we were in the small building with the MGA and with the Women's Golf Association on the grounds of the Leo Martin Golf Course. And we were also looking at the MGA was growing so much and they wanted to do an addition to the building. And that ran into complications. And they ended up, we couldn't get the addition done. We had to get it through the state. And they ended up moving out and we missed that. But we developed more of our own identity on our own. And you just hit on some incredibly important things that became very wise decisions, perhaps including the change from not just caddies to pick two young men and women who work in golf in general. But before we hit on a few of those things, just for a minute, jumping ahead to the present day, you are the 2023 We Met and you're the 2023 Denny Goodrich Honorary Alumnus Award recipient this year, which you will receive at the annual meeting. And you mentioned Denny's name a few times and given you were hired by him many years ago and you worked very closely with him for decades, is there a deeper feeling of connection to the Goodrich family or to this award for you specifically? Absolutely. I'm very honored to be linked to Denny in this special way and Denny's family. And if you look back, I mean, he was in every committee and strategic study, and he was so enthusiastic in what he did with the banquets over the years. I mean, if you went into his office, he always had all these pictures of the head table group. And I mean, he really wore the We Met heart on his sleeve. And the other thing was Denny's dad had been involved with the MGA and had been president of the MGA. And to have two generations of them, presidents of the major golf organizations in Massachusetts, Denny was very, very proud of that, as he should be. Absolutely. You know, going back, Bob, to your early years as executive director, we'll touch on a few programs you were central in developing or enhancing for the fund. These are programs that still have a major impact for the We Met Scholars today. The most significant, perhaps, you know, could be argued, but is the expansion and the development of the endowment at the We Met Fund. And just for background for listeners, when you started, there was an endowment in place. It was relatively small with a couple of awards. When you retired, there were 155 named endowed scholarships, which is an astonishingly successful legacy. When did you and the board decide that focusing on growing the endowment was a key piece of your role and the direction of the fund? It wasn't so much that we decided it was, but as a bunch of things, we just kind of, I don't want to say stumbled, but we picked up a piece here, a piece there, and then started to realize, boy, this could be good. And Steve Buckley was the treasurer at the time. Steve had gone to Boston Latin School and then up to Bowdoin, and he was on the Boston Latin School Foundation board, and they had some endowments, and they had a standard endowment agreement, which was basically the same thing used in most of the colleges. And we had a group we were trying to recruit to bring in with us. And we could show them, oh, boy, here's a real agreement that looked very professional. And that became a selling point. And then also we could put what restrictions might be. And there are some people that said we shouldn't do endowments where there is a specific donor or a specific recipient that the donor can designate what it would be. The donor couldn't pick who the kid would be. But that became important to donors. They didn't want to just see their money go into a big black hole and wanted to designate it could be somebody going to a certain school who'd worked at a certain club, a certain type of study. So gradually, and the key thing here is success begets success. We started to sell a couple promote them in our publications. We really pushed these endowments, and that started to bring more to us. And then we had years that people like Ted Hansbury, Heiberger, Peter Mache, they had been the development chairs, and you know they brought in a few, reached out to friends of theirs, so it just kept growing and growing. And now you start to see that 5% throw-off Well, it's small money at first, but it starts to really grow, and you can see it. 
And you can realize that, gee, that's going to throw off a few hundred thousand dollars to the overall scholarships in a couple of years. Let's go after this. But it was a lot of work to do. So get people in who can help on it. Yeah. I was just thinking recruiting people. And Denny Goodrich was recruited right in the delivery room when his son was born to join <laughs> yes. the We Met Fund as that's a donor. A and that's just, you know, whether it's endowment or what have you, it's word of mouth. Yeah. Right. So much of it absolutely is word of mouth. We had this little small thing in the first couple of years where the endowments were just listed in that annual report that you described. And then when we got to a certain point, and maybe Peter Mesh suggested, or Tom Martin, you need to do a separate publication for this. And what a marketing piece that became. It remains an important marketing piece for us. We each year have an event with over 200 people at Wellesley Country Club where we bring together endowment creators and the scholars who receive those awards. And it's really become an enormous program, giving off 40-odd percent of the scholarship dollars every year. So that was a very prescient decision by you and the board to move forward with that. Another great decision was the creation of the Golf Marathon in the 1990s, Bob. <laughs> it's now the Golf Sprint, but since launching that event... It's raised more than $8 million. It's had tens of thousands of supporters. Just this year, it's raised over $550,000. Just to say it's a crucial piece of making scholarships happen would be an understatement. Can you bring us back to the development of the idea for that event? Was it a tough sell to the staff, board of directors, the participants for how it worked? Yes and no. In October of 92, Ted Kennerson succeeded Denny Goodrich as president. And just before his first board meeting, a fellow named Milt Kay had been on the board, and Milt was a member at Nishada Country Club. And Milt kept mentioning this fellow, Walter Lankow, who owned Stowe Acres Country Club and was pretty involved in golf and put him on the board. So we did. And we wanted some outreach on our board to the public golf course world. So Walter happily agreed to join the board, but he said, could I meet with you, meaning me and the president, Ted Kennerson, for a few minutes before the first board meeting? So we did sat down in a small conference room. He said, let me tell you about this event we've had at, our, at Stowe Wakers the last year and starts to describe this marathon. And there was a company called ProFund that was coordinating these, kind of selling how you could do it. And Walter said, this sounds like it's absolutely perfect. And Ted Kennerson knew marketing and knew how to sell something. And he said, oh boy, we could do some big things with this. And so we went to the board meeting and got through it. And then we got into the other business section, bring it up. And a couple of people just are like horrified. One of them who I'll never forget the idea that putts inside the leather would be good. Oh, you can't be doing that. <laughs> no, give me. <laughs> and we had a hard time getting to understand this is not a competitive golf tournament. This will never be a USGA event. <laughs> <laughs> Although you could have said Francis used to like give a lot of putts. He used to like giving out putts to everybody. <laughs> yeah, we should have. But one of the things we were able to do, though, was we had this big network. I mean, the other people who had done the golf marathons basically reached out to all just their friends and the people they worked with. But suddenly we had this untapped network of all the clubs. We could do a poster that goes through all the clubs. We could do pledging and different kind of promotions to the clubs. And we took a little bit to explain it, but they became gung-ho. And we got a lot of pretty good friends and directors and long-term donors came out of the marathon and we made it fun. And then you folks did a tremendous job switching it over, which was the right thing to do because with the sprint, it had so much more expansion possibility. So it's good. And it's really a trademark of we met in some ways today. Yeah, it's fun to hear the origins of that event, which a lot of people kind of take for granted because they're so excited to do it every year. But 30 years ago, it was an idea that the corner of a room before a board meeting. That's just <laughs> so cool. Right. Bob, I want to read you a few stats here to get your reaction. Since 1996, 165 young men and women from Franklin Park and George Wright Golf Courses have received $2.2 million in college scholarships from the We Met Fund. And now each summer, more than 50 teenagers participate in the Boston Parks and Rec Caddy Scholars Program. You were an important force behind the partnership with and the growth of that Caddy Scholars Program in Boston in the mid-90s, working with Mayor Menino, as well as Diddy Cullinane, and many more. The program sustained, it's really blossomed into a 
summer jobs program that is a hotly sought after job for young people each year in the city. And that's their runway. You created a runway for the WeMet scholarship with the eligibility element as well. Where did the idea of this partnership come together? And talk us through the process and the key decision makers in Boston that made this program a reality. So it started the 92 U.S. junior with Tiger was at Wallace and and I was on the committee involved in that. And we brought Tiger over and he did a clinic. He and his dad, Earl, on the first fairway at Franklin Park, and 400 kids came to it. And like Tiger and the dad, they had this practice show and they did a fantastic job and got a pretty good write-up. And suddenly the city starts to say, gee, we could do something with that golf course and that sort of thing. But there's also some troubles at the time where the city is not spending much money to support the golf course. And Finally, Diddy Cullinane and a couple of groups come together, including this group called the Franklin Park Guardians, which were a bunch of older fellows at Franklin Park who had played there for years. And when the city stopped pumping money into it, basically took over running the golf course and paying for the fertilizer and cutting the greens themselves. And it was really tough that that would have to happen. And we're interested in how do we get kids into the We Met Scholarship Program? They're interested in what can they do at a Franklin Park. And a few things were kicked around. A few of them were kicked out. But at the end of the day, the idea, can we do something that's a program by which maybe there's a training program that has an academic element to it? And that would be a way to, for kids to become We Met scholars, which is our principal interest. And then they talk to the folks in the city and they say, gee, you could make that part of the summer jobs program. And at Franklin Park and George Wright, then the first few years, they had a couple of trailers where they were, in addition to training how to be a caddy, work on the golf course, take care of the carts, do that sort of stuff. They were also getting a couple of hours a day of academic math and English instruction. It was a terrific program. And you're talking about that number of what it's become. I mean, that was our dream. And we, we were involved in inner city golf. And the other thing it did was, boy, was that an attractive hook for endowed scholarships, people who wanted to support them. And I might meet with somebody and talk about our endowed scholarships, and they might have no idea that we have some involvement with the inner city. And some people would say, gee, I want to support that. Can we structure that mine is going to go to help a kid from the inner city, maybe a minority kid, a female? So that's what happened. Well, it was a great decision for many reasons, as you just hit on, and it remains one of the most successful programs that the WeMet Fund is involved in. We're very proud of it. And just this year, we had our first reunion of alumni and current participants of that program at George Wright, and it was great. We had a big crowd there, and the alumni of that group and that community stay really close together, which is, it was really great to see. We're going to do that every year, which we look forward to. Now, Bob, earlier this year on this podcast, in an earlier episode, we were fortunate enough to speak with Dick Connolly, who many listeners know to be the greatest benefactor in WeMet Fund's history. And during that interview, we talked about the creation of the annual banquet back in the 1996-1997 and how he was so grateful to Arnold Palmer, who was the reason the annual banquet had become the largest golf dinner in the country. Now, from your perspective, looking back to those years, what were the steps to building out such an enormous fundraiser? Did it start with a pitch to the board and evolved from there to 1,500-odd guests excited to celebrate that we met fun and hear from Arnold? Well, you have to take a half a step back and look at what the banquet was before. It was at the Newton Marriott, and we could squeeze 500 bodies into it, didn't really have a reception. And it was basically students, parents, board, and some people from some of the clubs, and the clubs might buy a table. And at the end of the day, the event might gain or lose 1000 or $2,000. It was a lot of work for something that was very nice. And the speakers were Larry Moulter some people involved in the Red Sox over the years, and good local people, but nobody who's on the national level. And Dick had been trying to get Arnold for a couple of years, and we always had the dinner between Christmas and New Year's when kids were home, or like a couple of days after New Year's before they went back to school. And Dick was really trying to get Arnold this year, and Arnold had a couple of commitments, and we're kind of coming to the end where it's fish or cut bait time, as they say. And finally, 
Arnold, I think, asked Mark McCormick, let me out of that one. I'll do that for them later on. So Arnold agrees to do it like on November 1st or November 8th for a January 2nd event. And Dick, Charlie Fox, Steve Buckley, Denny, a couple of others. We have a luncheon at the Algonquin Club in town and invite a bunch of potential sponsors. And they just go crazy selling sponsorships. And all of a sudden, we end up with an event that was at the Sheridan. And we go from 500 people to 1,450 people. And it's just a home run. The next year, there were some people on the board that didn't think we could do it two years in a row. So somebody made the suggestion. I think it was Charlie Fox. Well, why don't we ask Gene Sarazen, who'd been an old friend, and he knew that Gene wasn't going to come up here anyway. He was down in Marco Island, but he had been a very, very dear friend of Francis. So we went down to Naples and to Marco, and Kramer had a production crew that was just finishing up shooting something in Fort Lauderdale. And the fellows drove the truck over with the cameras, and we interviewed Sarazen at Marco Island Country Club on a Saturday morning. It was kind of cranky. And I was a little nervous about that. But as soon as that camera went on, boom, he went right into telling his stories and couldn't be more charming. So that's what we played that. And Mark Mulvoy from Boston originally, who was the editor, publisher for Sports Illustrated, he spoke. And Saracen's granddaughter, Pam Nicky, who lived in Boston, Saracen had a home up at Lake Sunapee. So we kept it alive. And the next year, we had Ben Crenshaw, and it just took off. He was Ryder Cup captain, and we had that at one of the big hotels in town. And then we were at the big hotels for that. And selling sponsorships, filling tables, always at least minimum of 1,300, 1,400 people. And it's sustained today. And you talked about the two-month turnaround and the different timing. And we're back in the spring for 2024 in March with Julie Ingstor at the Encore, and it's still the largest golf dinner in America, Bob. So congrats Absolutely. there. And one of the best things that happened was we were doing it those first few years still tied to the mindset of the old scheduling right around Christmas and New Year's. And then I think it was with Crenshaw. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was with Crenshaw. They couldn't do it then, but he could do it at the end of March. And we got to that end of March, April timeframe. And people were coming back from Florida, and it became suddenly the unofficial kickoff to the spring season, and people got together, and all these stars aligned, and it's been terrific ever since. Well, the stars aligned for us last season on our podcast. We were fortunate to interview on this show Mark Frost, the prolific author and producer most famous in our We Met community for having written both the novel and the screenplay of The Greatest Game Ever Played. During his interview, Bob, I know you heard it, but he noted the important role that you played in providing background information and introductions to key folks for context here in Massachusetts. Can you take us back to that first time that you spoke with Mark? Did it dawn on you at the time how incredible this could be, not just for Mr. Francis Wiemet's legacy, but for the promotion of the organization? Yes. We had been... Again, there's always a little bit of a backstory. We've been contacted by a couple of other groups over in the, say, the previous five or six years. And I was like, please go away. I mean, the ideas they had were so terrible and so far out there, not exactly what we wanted for we met. And like, I'm sort of at this point hesitant to speak with anybody. And at first, I'm a little, eh. And then I suddenly realized, and I get some more information. This guy's for real. He's got some pretty good ideas. And he had talked to the USGA. One of the things that amazed him was there was never a book about Harry Varden. How could that be? And he stumbles upon this story. And Mark is a phenomenal storyteller, as you know, and writes script. And so I do help him out and hook him up with some people. And he interviews and he meets with Louis Newell wonderful late Louis Newell was a historian at TCC, and they opened a mark to a treasure trove of stuff. So anyway, around December 10th, Mark sends me a big box that's full of, it's got to be eight inches of copy. This is the first copy of the book, and he wants me to review it. So I say, okay, you know, we used to go to Florida with my family, so I've got it in two huge three ring binders that are like four inches wide. 
I'm reading it on the plane. I'm reading it at night after dinner. I'm actually reading it on the beach. And my wife is saying, what are you doing? What's this all about? And finally, I'm on the beach one afternoon, and I'm reading, and I come to this segment where we're getting towards the end of him winning the playoff. And what Mark has done is Mark is a screenwriter. He's a tremendous dialogue writer. And he'll admit he's making up dialogue, but it's probable dialogue. And I'm reading this thing, and I have suddenly a tearful moment. I say to myself, there's a movie here. (laughs) You can see it. That was your reaction. There's a movie here. Yeah, That was my reaction. And sure enough, and I started to ask him about it. He said, well, yeah, yeah. Anyway, one thing leads to another when he works something out with Disney. And the book had eight printings, won the USGA award. And the book was absolutely wonderful, fabulous. He then did a Bobby Jones book and later on did the match. And he started to talk to different people. And Dick Cook, who was the chairman of Disney, and Dick Cook agreed to go ahead with the movie. And Bill Paxton had never directed a movie before, but he'd been in a bunch. And Bill had actually shagged, if you can imagine this, for Ben Hogan at Shady Oaks when he was a kid. And loved golf, didn't get to play much, but he had some ideas how he could make this exciting. And they they did an absolutely wonderful job in the movie. And as you so well know, so many kids, they learn from watching that movie. And that movie's been shown so many times on Golf Channel and the DVD of the movie. It's considered one of the best golf movies ever made. And thank you, Mark Frost. Yeah. And thank you for being part of it. He certainly thanks you. And thank you for joining us today, Bob. Before we wrap, I think it's a great chance for just kind of a little bit of a reflection, reflecting on on all that you talked about and walked us through from a young caddy at Wollaston to 30 years leading one of the great nonprofits in the country, which we tie in at golf and education. Again, you came in here with a handful of endowed, it grew to 155. Awards from 250,000, it's now two and a half million when you left, were given out 3.25 million just a few weeks ago. The number of kids doubled in the program under your watch. To be honest, the overall awareness of Francis and the fund in your 30 years, that has to make you proud. And as you look back, what stands out as your favorite memory or impact? Oh gosh, there's so many. You think about nights at the banquet and producing an event like that. I need to thank you. You came on board in 2003 as an intern just graduating from Denison. And look what you've done. And you too, Thomas, the way it's grown. We have to make some tough decisions along the way. What do we pick up? What do we get away from? But there's so many wonderful kids and wonderful families. And I like to tell the story. My favorite day was always those twice a year in September. And in February, when I'm signing 400 and some checks, <laughs> that's a lot of fun. Yeah. Carpal tunnel, right, Bob? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't bother me that day. That's right. Bob, again, as Colin just said, the impact that you've brought to this organization, the legacy that you left for this organization, is it's remarkable. It was great for me. I joined the team in 2017. We were able to work together for a number of years, but we're still very lucky that you're very involved with the fund. You remain a trustee of the We Met Fund. You're extraordinarily involved, and you come to a lot of events every year, and we're very fortunate we get to see you throughout the year. But the fund has been very fortunate that you led the way for three decades. So kudos to you again, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you very much, and very proud to be part of it, and congratulations to you folks for all you do, and reach out to me anytime. I'm proud to help. Thank you, Bob. Awesome. Awesome.